All right, this is Gary Parrish again from CBSSports.com. Again, it's uh, late Sunday, January 25th, and this is, of course, the Ion College Basketball Podcast, brought to you by Squarespace, which recently launched a version of its platform called Squarespace 7, which has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images, and Google Apps, 15 new templates, and a feature called Cover Pages. You want to try it? Go to Squarespace.com and enter the offer code FUN at checkout to get 10% off that Squarespace. Start here go anywhere. Okay, I'm joined uh, for this episode by USA Today's Nicole Auerbach, and um, the reason we're recording this on late Sunday as opposed to early Monday is because I actually have a flight that was scheduled for late Monday afternoon into New York City, and uh, Delta uh, notified me earlier uh, tonight that they have canceled that flight, and I will now be traveling early, early in the morning, so we had to knock this out tonight because, Nicole, I'm headed your way. You live in Manhattan, and best I can tell from CNN, this is supposed to be the worst snowstorm ever. Is that just something they tell people like me on CNN, or is this something like New Yorkers are actually concerned about as well? I mean, I'm not sure if you're the target audience for CNN, (laughs) (laughs) early, but no, I, you know, I was completely unaware of this because I only really like turn my TV on to watch sports. And apparently this has been like a thing that's been building like this giant blizzard and there's like supposed to be like two feet of snow. And I think like the most snow that New York City has ever gotten hit by is like a little bit over two feet. Um, and yeah, so I went to the garden today for Coach K's thousandth win and everyone's a buzz about this. And I'm like, should I be going to the store to buy groceries <laughs> on the way home from the game? I was very concerned. But apparently it is supposed to be bad. Although I will tell you this, um, on Friday into Saturday, it was also supposed to be like a nor'easter on the East Coast. Sure. And like New York City got like an inch of snow. So we'll see. Yeah, okay. So I should be there now like by noon, a little after noon on uh, Monday. You might get stuck. You might get stuck. Yeah, yeah, I might get stuck there, like in New York. Is that what we're thinking? Yeah, but I'm sure Seamless will still deliver you food, yeah. and you'll be able to get your wine. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. As long as like, yeah, as long as the hotel bar doesn't close, and like they can still make a burger or something, I'm, I'm sure I'll survive it. But anyway, I will be, uh, I'll be in Manhattan with you uh, soon. I appreciate you doing this on a Sunday night. And let's go ahead and start with, you know, what you were talking about a moment ago, which is you were at the Garden earlier today. Uh, Mike Krzyzewski did win his 1,000th career game. It looked for a little while like it was going to be in doubt. And when you start looking at Duke's schedule, like then it's at Notre Dame and at Virginia. So like, if he didn't get this done today, it could be another week and a half before he got it done. Did you sense any sort of relief from Coach K or the, the players or people connected from the Dukes just to get this over with? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Coach K literally said that afterwards. He was like, I'm glad this is over. And I think if you're the coach in this situation, you're definitely like, you just want it to be done because everyone's talking about you. And he has said, he's like, I've been reading all these, or I've been seeing all these articles and like lots of anecdotes and stories that I didn't even know or remember about myself. Like he, he said that, you know, like it's a lot. And and I think with the lead up and especially those two losses that kind of pushed everything back two games, it, it's been a lot for him. And I, I don't know how the players, you know, you could definitely tell that something was off. And I was actually shocked that they kind of switched into a different gear and all of a sudden they just looked so much feistier and tougher. I mean, Okafor was like really going at Obekpa and like he was really, he really got into it in the second half. And I actually think Quinn Cook and and Plumlee really were the kind of the key that sparked that second half run. But, you know, for a long time, it did not look like they were going to to flip a switch. I mean, they, they were getting outplayed easily, like throughout, you know, a game, a half and into the second half. And and so I think that that, to me, I was thinking, wow, this is, this is a bunch of players who are like kind of wilting under the pressure of, 
being on the court for the thousandth win of a coach's career. And, and, but then they just kind of flipped it and they were just kind of like, no, we, we want to get it today. And that, and that was sort of the vibe. And, and that was kind of, you could feel that, that they were coming at that. But I think the coaches, um, and especially Mike Krzyzewski were like, let's just please get this done like the earliest possible time. Cause I agree with you. I mean, I think those next two games could easily have been losses. And then this is going on for another week, another week and a half. And you're hearing, obviously he's going to get his thousand wins. Sure. Right? Just like, okay, but when, when is it really going to come? You know, I feel sick for Jim Beheim. Poor guy. I was looking at his career win total earlier and it's like, he's going to accomplish all of these same things, but nobody, <laughs> nobody will care when he does any of them. Cause it'll be just, it'll be like, you know, a year after Kay did it. Like he'll get to a thousand. Yep. And it would just won't matter because, or it won't matter nearly as much. Like Beheim just kind of got stuck. Like he's he's about, I don't know what it is exactly. Like maybe sixty games behind, or maybe. yeah, no, he's he's not that far off. I know. And all been at the same school, which is also kind of cool. But yeah, there's there's not really that much buzz. I think beyond him, I'm not really sure if anyone's really within a reachable number. But his is for sure. And you know, I think he's enjoying his little. He's gone like his little victory tour right now of getting to talk about Mike Krzyzewski playing zone. I think he's enjoying that. So <laughs> yeah. He's got that. He's, he's got it okay. You know what? Kay said afterward that somebody else will get to a thousand wins at some mm-hmm. point. He's just glad he's the first guy to ever do it. That's kind of neat. I wonder though, do you think somebody else will ever get to that? Because what it takes more than anything else beyond obvious um, greatness, it takes longevity. Like you have to do this for a long, long time. And I just wonder if in the current, um, you know, environment of college coaching, particularly at the high major level, which is probably where you got to be to win all these games. Um, you know, unless you're at a, you know, you get at the Gonzaga job in the WCC or, like, or Rickford, a Belmont. Yeah, like unless you have one of those jobs, you probably got to be at the high major level. And if you're at the high major level, you know, I, I just wonder if like anybody can coach this long at one school going forward because you'll just get fired at some point because they we don't tolerate um, we don't tolerate down periods as much as maybe we used to. There's just so much emphasis on win, win, win all the all the time that I actually wonder if if another guy can get to that number. What what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, no, I think it's really interesting. And I talked to this last week. I talked to. Jim Calhoun, Jim Beheim, Roy Williams, and John Calipari briefly about this exact topic. And what was so impressive about the first three guys, I mean, Calhoun was, he spent a good portion at Northeastern, but they're all the other, the and actually, I mean, Roy bounced around a little. Okay, sure. so maybe he's not the best example. The other two, Beheim and Calhoun, are good examples like K of most of the wins came at one place. And with Beheim, obviously all of them. And they were just kind of talking, like Beheim said to me, he said, you know, we're old guys, we're old school. You just kind of, you, you go around till you find a place that, that you fit, that likes you, and they'll let you stay, and you just stay. You're not, you're not looking for the next best thing. And that's something that Cal Perry said, that that would never happen nowadays because the coaching climate is so different and everyone is looking for the next place. And there are very, like, think about for you, I mean, you know, when Jim Beheim got to Syracuse, would you be like, oh, Syracuse, a destination job, you're never going to leave. Right. Like, it's not like we, they built like Syracuse and Duke and certain of these schools into those places. But now there's, I think there's very few jobs where you say 100% that person's not leaving. And also now you've got the NBA thrown in here. It's yeah. like, you know, Brad Stevens, you know, could have stayed at Butler forever, it would have been beloved, would never have gotten fired, also could have, you know, gone to wherever, higher yeah. major schools. 
but instead the NBA comes calling. So I think you have that. There's just so much other temptations. I think it takes a certain kind of coach and personality. And again, these old school guys that haven't left. Yeah, I'm with you. Like, it's an easy thing to say like, oh yeah, somebody else will do it. Because we just always assume somebody else will do it. I don't know that it's as simple as as maybe Kay made it sound. Well, beyond Bayheim. Right, right. Bayheim will do it, of course. Right. Was like someone else will pass me, which is may may never happen. Yeah, that's my thing. I don't know that anybody will ever pass him because you've got to again, you've got to be awesome at your job, and you've got to be awesome at your job consistently, like over Mm -hmm. decades. Like, don't ever have three down years in a row, or you can get fired no matter who you are. And and then you've got to be you've got to and if you're that awesome, you're going to have tons of other opportunities, which probably includes the NBA. You got to turn that down. It's just um, I don't know. Like you said, there's a lot of variables to it. You brought up Okafor. I want to ask you about him. It seems like this time last year, you know, we were debating. You know, Andrew Wiggins, Joel Embiid. We're always seemingly debating. You know, two or three guys for you know the number one pick in the NBA draft. Has Jalil basically? It seems like he's separated himself. Like we're not talking yeah. about who who might be the number one picks in the draft. It seems like we've everybody's basically settled on Okafor. Is that what is that the way you interpret it? Yeah, and it's been that way from the preseason on, and it's never really been questioned. I mean, you know, I think part of it maybe if Kentucky didn't have so many talented guys, we would pay attention to one or two of them more. But it's almost like because. They just have this like plethora of talent and like really tall guys and really talented guys and they're just beating everybody. Like there's less individual attention, which is probably kind of how Cal Perry wants it. But it, it it's almost, you know, they're a group together. So I think that has helped Okafor kind of stand out a little bit. But also, I mean, you had Kay all off season raving about him, being like, he is the, you know, he is so great. He's gonna be a a star at the next level, this and that. And he doesn't really do that for everyone. He didn't really do that for Jabari Parker. He would he would kind of hedge it a little bit. And I think that that kind of, when, when he's giving that kind of endorsement, you know it's the real deal. And he was so good right from the start of the season. I, you know, he's just so polished. He, 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 he's, there's a lot to like. And, you know, guys always love in the draft. They love big men with potential. And that's kind of like how Embiid kind of like rose last year. And and I think I think you're right though that for the first time in a few years it's not like a huge debate. I mean, think about two years ago, like that was like Nerlens Noel class. That was such a weird draft, right, and that right. was like completely chaotic and all over the place right up until the end. And then last year it was like a three way competition kind of. Um, it's just it's it's very interesting. But I think you know in the absence of a lot of seniors like we had last year in the game, in the absence of like a really really strong like consensus freshman class that has a bunch of legitimate stars that are NBA ready, it makes sense that there's only one guy who's kind of, you know, shoulders above everyone else, head and shoulders. I noticed what you noticed about Krzyzewski and the way he talked about Okafor. Um, Really, he's been talking about him this way, like from the beginning. I went there in the preseason to do something on Jaleel and – when talking to Shashevsky or even like Jeff Capel, anybody on that staff, they, they they didn't temper expectations at all. Like they, it wasn't like, well, you know, he's young, and well, you right. know, it the, it was nope. it was it was right from the start. You'll see. Like that that was actually a quote from from Kay. Like you'll mm-hmm. see how great he is. Like it was, and I I I, I sort of interpreted it the same way you did. Like if they're not even because like even I went the year before to go see Andrew Wiggins and Joel at Kansas and Bill Self was like it's going to take Wiggins a little time you know he's not what people think he is right now you know he can get there but it's going to take and there was none of that with Shashevsky like they were 
there we go. Oh no, he's just as good as everybody thinks he is, and he's going to be the best player in the country right from the start. And he, and to his credit, like he embraced those expectations and he and he lived up to it. And so it's really worked out to be um, to be nice on on every level. Like I. I thought it was tough on Wiggins last year because he had all these crazy expectations. And even though he was great, like he, he averaged 18 points for the Big 12 champions, but he still took a lot of bullets throughout the year and people were just nitpicking him. And there's really no reason to nitpick Okafor. He's been, like you said, great from, from the opening tip of the season and great as recently as, you know, this afternoon. Right, and he, he may hit a freshman wall or sure, have sure. a slump or something like that. But you're right. I mean, last year, right, Wiggins had all of the spotlight, despite the fact that there was Julius Randle and there was Parker. I mean, what Jabari benefited from was that spotlight on Wiggins because he had been injured his senior year. So he was actually kind of, weirdly enough, flying under the radar into yeah. last season. And he blew up, but he didn't have it, like, from day one. I mean, people knew the name. They knew he was on a Sports Illustrated cover. But it was totally about Andrew Wiggins and, like, this Canadian rise of basketball that, like, Parker didn't deal with. But Okafor, again, I think this season is a little bit different on on that realm, too. But I, I think, you know, I like, l- retrospectively, because I was also in Duke in the preseason, I remember, like, Jeff Capel saying, like, oh, Jabari was a pro when he got here. Like, we knew, you know, we wanted to get him a little bit of our condition, but, like, his skill set, like, he knew, he acted, he handled himself the way he needed to, blah, 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 blah. But they didn't say that right off the bat. They were still, like, and they would say things like they weren't sure if he was going to be one and done. I mean, they were basically, this past summer, being like, we're going to get Okafor for one year. He's going to be incredible. He's going to be incredible in the NBA. They were, like, basically just saying that right up front. And and he is living up to that, which is amazing. But he also, like like you said, I mean, when you talk to the kid, you sort of get that vibe. Like, he, none of this went to his head. He did not put extra pressure on himself at all. No, he was super cool. Like, uh, like I remember talking to him in the preseason. He was basically like, because I told him we were going to name him the you know, CBSSports.com, the preseason national player of the year. And I told him that when I did that, people were going to question it because he's a freshman and he hasn't played at this level and so on mm-hmm. and so forth, which I've always found fundamentally silly, All, you know, whether you're talking about Anthony Davis or Kevin Durant or Andrew Wiggins or anybody, but whatever. I knew what some people would say. And I was like, how would you respond to that? And he was like, you know, and these were Jalil's words. He he said, "I've never not been dominant. I've never not overwhelmed people trying to play against me, and I don't see any reason why that's not going to be the same uh, this year." So I've never played a college game yet, but when I do, I I suspect it's going to go the same way every other game for me in my entire life's always gone, which is I'm going to be the best player on the court, and I'm going to do what I want to do. And I just thought that like that's that's the mindset. The only other of all the freshmen, the great freshmen we've seen come through, the one and dones, that I remember being that confident, not just that talented, but that confident within yeah, my. He, it was he, Kevin Durant. Durant he, was the same way when I talked to him before his freshman year. Yeah, well, I mean, he's got. He knew. He knew his skill set. He knew his size. He knew what the college game. I mean, the college game right now, like they're like. I, you know, early on this season, I think it was from the Champions Classic, I wrote about you have to have bigs this year if you're going to compete and you're going to contend for a title. And that hasn't really been the case, for, like, across the board the last few years because, you know, maybe those guys are the ones who are leaving early or whatever. They're not developing their skill set or whatever. But, I mean, I think if you're him and you're like, hey, this is how I match up against most of college basketball, I'm going to be pretty confident. But I like, like, those quotes to me are, like, pure confidence but not cockiness. Right. It's just like, I know what I can do. No, I thought it was yeah. No, I I thought it was great when I when it it was 
on a couple of different levels, it, it registered with me. When Kay and Capel and all those guys were saying what they said, I was like, okay, we're on the right track here. And then when Jalil was that confident, it reminded me of, of Kevin Durant. I remember sitting with Kevin Durant in Austin before his freshman season. And I, we were doing position rankings at CBSSports.com. So we're like doing, you know, top 20 point guards, top 20 shooting guards. And he was like, and this is Durant asking me, like never played a college game yet. This is two months before the season. He said, so who, who's going to be on the small forward list? And I was like, I don't know. I can't remember who it was. I was like, where should I put you? I was just joking. And I mean, I was just sort of laughing when I said, it. I was like, where should I put you? He was like, put me number one. He's like, he's like, he's like, I'll be the best. And I said, what about Thaddeus Young? He said, yeah, put him number two. <laughs> but he was, he was very confident in what he was doing. Come across like a, in a bad way. No. Because it's, it's just a confidence thing, which is, is different and hard to manage, especially with like a lot of these kids who are coming to college. I mean, there's so many each year that think they're one and done. But these guys like really seem to understand their skill set and how they stack up. No, 100%. There's a difference between being confident and cocky. And both, like Durant struck me as confident but not cocky. And, and Jaleel, same way. Just very sure of himself. Not trying to brag, just very, very uh, sure of himself. Let's switch gears a little bit. Last week you filed a, a terrific piece uh, for USA Today about some of the things hindering college basketball as a, a desirable sport for casual fans. Among the things you noted were... Um, that scoring's down. Uh, an ESPN spokesperson told you TV ratings are also slightly down. Uh, we're on pace to have the slowest season, um, I believe, the shot clock of the shot clock era. And though I realize none of these things are going to be the death of college basketball, they do seem like issues to me, especially when college basketball's biggest competition for eyeballs and enthusiasm. Um, the NBA seems to be growing thanks to a slew of likable stars and a generally enjoyable product. So I'm curious, like while you're reporting that story, did you get the sense that the influential people within the sport understand what the sport is facing? Do they recognize some of these bad trends or do they think we're crazy for caring about them the way we do? No, you know, that that was kind of the most surprising thing because I was coming off, I did a lot more college football this year. Sure. So I would argue, you know, I, I agree that the NBA is like, you know, competition for college basketball fans, but I think college football is too because Huge. you have so many fans who who root for their alma mater and then they switch gears and they'll root for who's ever on the basketball team because, again, transfers and one and dones, you don't always know who's there. You root for the team on the front of the jersey. But I think, you know, coming out of football season and seeing how well, A, the college football playoff had done in its first year and how much buzz there was constantly around it and how many good games there were. There's not great defense in college football right now, but, you know, exciting games and it's fun and, and you know, the Heisman contenders, you know, they're popular, whatever. People know people in college football because they stay longer. So coming out of all of that and then coming back in the college basketball world, which I've been keeping tabs on, but was coming at from more of a, I just did all this football. I, you know, if I'm a general fan and now I'm turning and tuning into college basketball, what am I watching standpoint? You know, all of those, uh, all of that stuck out. And it was kind of like two seasons ago, which was the season that prompted a lot of rule changes to kind of open up the game and make things easier for offenses. But it, it, it's slower this season. So it's even uglier. You're seeing a lot more games in the 40s and 50s. And it's just, it, it's difficult to watch. And a lot of times defenses are getting credited for being good defenses when really it's the other team just can't score. And that's a separate issue. But I, you know, so I, I'm talking to coaches while I'm working on this and talking to other people in and around the game. And then, you know, and, and they're all, I'm reaching out to someone. I'm asking, you know, what, what do you think, you know, about this and this? And then I'm getting these long, long paragraph texts back 
of like, here's five other things that, that the wow. game needs to really work on, needs to improve. And then talking to other coaches, then the story runs and I'm getting a bunch more texts and calls from people being like, this is spot on. This is exactly what we need to fix. But the problem is, and we've heard Coach K talk about this for years, about the need for like a college basketball commissioner, is that there's no one that all of these people who feel this way about the game can direct that towards. Like, like, how do you fix things like that? Mm-hmm. How do you open up the game and, and have better scoring and better rules and better officiating and all this stuff if there's not really like a centralized body? Yeah, it's it's weird to me because you know all of these things that you've mentioned in the in the article and and for people who haven't seen it, you can you can find it on usatoday.com. It's also linked in our uh, blog post that that links the the podcast, so you can find it there as well. You know, all of these things are very real things, and it's almost become like a weird debate among college basketball writers and observers. Like um, I, I've always, I've noticed for a while now that there are certain people who cover the sport the way we cover the sport, that that feel compelled to defend it at every turn. Like they are the defenders of college basketball. Like I've never I've never um thought of myself as of having that responsibility. Like I'm just here to tell stories and, and make jokes every once in a while. I'm not I'm not here to try to tell you know, I'll I'll, I'll see folks some every once in a while look like tweet things like, you know, college basketball is the best sport in the country. And I'm like, no, it's not. Like it's not the best sport in the country for a variety of reasons. Like you know what? It's not even the best basketball sport in the country. I live in an NBA city, just like you live in an NBA city. Now, the NBA being played in my city, you're, yeah, yours is barely an NBA city. <laughs> but so the the, the, ball play, the basketball being played in my city at the NBA levels is slightly better. But here's my point. I am somebody who literally sits courtside at a college game one night and sits courtside at an NBA game the next. And it's it's not even watching the same sport. And I'm not even talking about, well, the, of course the pros are better. Like, I know the pros are better, but that's just like the NFL players are better than the college football players. But it's just like a, it is so much more enjoyable watching a, a, a nice NBA game as opposed to watching, you know, 90% of college basketball games. Uh, every time I turn on, like, not every time. I don't want to, I don't want to exaggerate here. But like, we look up and it's, it's, you know, 24 to 21 at halftime and in, in, in college basketball games. And the, the tempo is, um, is, is, isn't uh, pleasing to the eye. The shot making is almost non-existent. And then your uh, one of your initial points, which is we don't even know the players. Like I know the players, you know, the players, but like, does my neighbor have any idea who DeLon Wright is? Does my, yeah. Does my neighbor know Mellow Trimble? Like the the problem with college, but to me, listen. There's rule problems. There's shot clock problems. There's scoring problems. All of that stuff. To me, the main problem is that there's so that no other mainstream sport in America, far as I know, has as much turnover as college basketball. In other words. You know, we don't get a second season of Johnny Manziel mania. We don't get a second season of Jameis Winston. We don't get a second season of um, of, of anything, really. Like, we won't get a second season of Jalo Okafor. We're lucky if we get a second season of Frank Kaminsky. And so, like, there are just so many issues within the sport that need to be addressed. And I just, I don't understand. Because, like, when you tweet your story, I see, like, some there were, there were people saying, oh, college basketball's fine. And I'm like, it's not fine. It, I mean, it's okay, but if you don't think there's things that could be fixed to try to attract a, a larger audience or a different audience, you're out of your mind. Right. And I, I mean, I think, you know, and part of the point in, in the story was that 
lots of people are still going to watch March Madness. Sure. And people are going to watch the Final Four. And, and I, so I talked to Jim Calhoun the other day, and I was calling him about Coach K, and he went on a rant about the state of the game. And he was basically saying just because the tournament brings in a lot of money and a lot of eyeballs and people go to the games does not mean the sport itself is healthy. And he is talking about he, – he believes it sounds like that if the turnover issues, like what you're saying with, with transfers and the one and done, he thinks that that's fixed, everything else improves. because And he's right. I mean, if you, if you think about it logically, if guys stay at the same programs longer and develop their skill sets and develop in the same place, like – you would think that they would play better and therefore the teams would be better. People would know people more. All of those issues that you just brought up would, would kind of be fixed, but, but it's, that's just such an issue. And, and, and so many people within college basketball are so concerned about it. And then at the end of the day, it's an NBA thing. It's an NBA rule. It's a collective bargaining thing. Like it's just something that cannot be fixed. So there, I agree with you that I think, you know, from, if you come at it from a standpoint where you're going to have college basketball diehard fans and, college basketball diehard writers who who love it and are going to watch everything and they're going to you know stay up super late and watch all the west coast conference games that's fine that they're always going to be there but for for the general sports fans like that's what we're talking about the people who could just flip to an nba game or in december are just going to watch college football instead of you know arizona gonzaga which was on a college football saturday like during championship weekend or something i mean there there were times where and again, I mean, that's a, that's a scheduling thing. There, there's so many different things that could be tweaked to kind of maximize the sport of college basketball that just aren't. And But I think it, I agree with you that I think it starts with the players and the development of the players. And, and that's something that you don't get two years of some of the best guys. Or I mean, imagine if – is this the year that um, Anthony Davis would have been a senior? Right, is that right. True? right. Like, I mean, imagine if we'd had him for four years in the sport. Yeah, I'm not even I'm not even saying like keep kids for four years. Like I'm I'm actually like I'm a big fan of the uh, the baseball rule. Like if you could somehow implement that, let the special talents who want to turn pro or anybody who wants to turn pro at a high school. I'm not here to parent people. If some borderline top 100 recruit decides he wants to take a shot at the NBA at a high school, fine. You know, go go. You know, good luck. I, it, that doesn't bother me at all. But let you know. So let whoever wants to go to high school go. But then figure out a way that if you if you actually enroll in college. You're ineligible for the NBA draft for the next, you know, three years. You got to do three years, right? Um, and and th- then that would at least we would know who's on rosters. I mean, like Marcus Smart would be at Oklahoma State right now. Um, if Jabari would have come to college, he'd still be at Duke. There is there is no other sport in the in the country that people watch that you have to start from scratch basically every year. Like you don't know who the, like again, every first team, second team, and third team AP All-American from last year is no longer in college this year. Like you you really start from scratch. And so when you're trying to, particularly when you recognize that this is a sport, basketball, that at the professional level is marketed around the stars. Like that's the way that, they, you know, it's it's Kobe on Christmas Day. It's not necessarily the Lakers on Christmas Day. It's LeBron, it's Kevin, it's it's uh, the unibrow. Like this, that's the way that sport's marketed. You can't market college basketball around players because nobody knows who the hell they are. Like I'm not even joking. Like is only coaches. Yeah. You got. You, it's all you can do. Like if I went – if I went to a sports bar, I'm not even talking about like if I went to my grandmother's house who doesn't watch college basketball. I'm talking about if I went to a sports bar, which by definition be, should be sports fans, and I took just pictures in there of whoever we think the top 10 players in America are. So let's go Okafor, Kaminsky, um, uh, D'Angelo Russell, um, you know, whoever, whoever you th- want to put on the list. 
I bet you uh, the average sports fan in a sports bar couldn't recognize the face of of even half of the top 10 college basketball players in America. That's a problem. Well, and I bet if you asked them what team they played for, right. that'd be a tough one too. That would be a tough one. If I just held up a picture of D'Angelo Russell. Justin Anderson, who does he play for? Right. Oh, yeah. How about that? If I just went into a random bar in America and said, who does Justin Anderson play college basketball for? How many casuals, how many, how many just normal sports fans could even answer that question? Right. I mean, and that's a problem. Right. Yeah. They're on the number two team in the country. Right, right. No, it's it's all it's all interesting. Again, if you guys haven't uh, listening, haven't seen the uh, story, check it out at usadaydaycom or you can find it in the uh, blog post of this podcast. Remember, today's Ion College Basketball Podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, where you can easily create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace is now redesigned with Squarespace 7 interface including integration with Google Apps, partnership with Getty Images, 15 new templates, and cover pages. And Squarespace has an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Everything starts at just $8 a month, and it includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. And every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website. So your content is going to look great on every device every time. Start a free trial by going to squarespace.com. Use the offer code FUN to get 10% off, no credit card required, 10% off, and to show your support for the Ion College Basketball Podcast. That's Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. Okay, let's um, do some news and notes presented by Squarespace. Ohio State's D'Angelo Russell um, has been awesome all season, but especially lately. He got 33.7 rebounds, 6 assists, and a midweek win over Northwestern. Then he got 22.6 rebounds and 10 assists in Sunday's win over Indiana. Can he get into the National Player of the Year discussion, or does he need Ohio State to be significantly better for that to happen? That's a really good question. Um... Again, you know, I, I mean, it, the discussion or like actually in contention right, because I think right. you know we talked about Okafor and and you do have like Kaminsky and you have some other people in this in this um, in this race and like I think you know if Arizona gets really hot and like Stanley Robinson like really gets going, that's somebody who could emerge too. But you know, I it, that's always such an interesting question. Like, should the player of the year should it matter if the team is really good? I think it matters. I, I, now, I don't, like, if you're just special beyond belief, then you're special beyond belief. And he is, he's bordering on that right now. Like, he is yeah. awesome, and he's fun to watch. But I think you've got to be on a nationally relevant team. It doesn't have to be a top five team. Like, it could be a top 20 team. Yeah, right. So, like, I mean, just a team that makes the tournament, I don't think so. Yeah, I think I, be, be, I think you got to be on a nationally relevant team, and, and that's easy to do. It like you know, Ohio State though they've been, I guess, underwhelming for most of the year. They haven't really taken too many bad losses. They just haven't got. They've just basically lost to all the good teams they play. They haven't really lost to bad teams. They just keep losing to like reasonable teams. They got a nice one over Indiana uh, on Sunday afternoon. But he's uh, for people who haven't been watching him, you should. He's just a he's an amazing. Uh, uh, talent and and uh, wonderful vision like I talked to the it was funny I talked to the Ohio State staff in the preseason and I was I was talking to Thad Mata and I was working on a story on, on Shannon Scott actually and I remember um you know I just sort of didn't passing like to, you know wrapping up a conversation I said so how's that uh, D'Angelo Russell been he was like he's he's like he's terrific and what's wild is he's a better passer than I realized and I'm like really and he said yes he sees things on the court that I don't even see and I just sort of like, I don't know, stored that away. And then you start watching some of these pa- passes he's making in games. And it's like he really does see things that, that you know, you can either see those things or you can't see those things. I don't think they're things you can learn. And he's got a, a, a special vision on the court. So if people haven't seen him yet, uh, make sure to check out Ohio yeah, State. He's, 
he's practically got his own YouTube channel yeah. for some of the passes now. <laughs> he's terrific. I mean, he's like these bounce passes he's making are just off the charts. <laughs> They're out of control. They're out of control. Okay, used to live in D.C. before you lived in New York. That's where Georgetown's located. So you know that program well. The Hoyas are now uh, 14 and 5. Uh, they're atop the Big East standings. And some of that um, is because of Josh Smith. He's a legitimate college post presence, averaging 13 points and 7 rebounds per game. Are you surprised he's become a relevant member of a top 25 team? I would say no, but you're right. I mean, there were multiple opportunities for him to do this that he didn't do. Right. Um, but, I mean, this is obviously what Georgetown was banking on, you know, when they, you know, put their neck out and, and got him and, and went through all that last year. But I think, you know, I remember last year in the preseason, I remember JT3 just raving about his hands and and the way he – just like his touches, the way he caught the ball, like the way he handled it, the way he could pass. I mean, there was just there was just a lot of like skill there that people hadn't seen because he wasn't staying in games very long, wasn't playing a ton. And like so so the fact that he's been good is 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 not that surprising to me. But I also think, you know, the big thing with Georgetown, at least to me, is that their freshmen have grown up really fast. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, they're not playing like freshmen. And we're not I mean, I know we're like in the second semester and there's lots of people who are of that belief that, you know, second semester freshmen are practically sophomores, whatever, they've gotten experience, but really not. I mean, we're, you know, a little over halfway through the season. These guys are hitting game-winning shots. They're stepping up big late in the game. I mean, they're so impressive, and they're so poised, and they're so good, and they've gotten so good so fast. Um, And then, like, Devontae Smith-Rivera, I've, like, I've enjoyed watching him for a few years now. I saw him score, like, 33 against DePaul or something freshman year, and he that was, like, kind of the first glimpse of, like, how good he could be. I think, like, they're all just – they have all these really good pieces, and they're all kind of fitting together well. And I think the Big East is, like, a really interesting conference this year and, like, really deep, and they're being forced to play at a high level to win these games. Um, so I actually really like what Georgetown is doing right now. I mean, I'm shocked what they did to Villanova. Right, Um, but I'm even more impressed with like kind of how they beat Marquette on Saturday and the way like the poise and the style of play and all of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, I really like the Hoyas right now. Last thing before I uh, let you out of here, um, you tweeted about this over the weekend. Oregon State has now won five of its past six games. They swept the Arizona schools at home, then they swept the LA schools at home. They're now fourteen and five, five and two in the Pac-12. That's tied for third in the league standings. As you pointed out. Um, Oregon State only won more, a total, um, uh, a total of more than 14 games in three of Craig Robinson's six seasons in Corvallis. And so now Wayne Tinkle's just killing it, right? He, what Sean Miller's doing at Arizona is obviously outstanding. Larry Kristoyak at Utah, too. But you could make a case, I, I think, for Wayne Tinkle to be Pac-12 Coach of the Year. I mean, he's really um, – that's a hard job period. It's mm-hmm. also a hard job to inherit. I thought most of us uh, were under the impression it was going to take, if it was going to happen at all, it was going to take a little while. And yet, um, I don't know if he's on his way to the NCAA tournament, but my God, he's got him competing at like, like literally near the top of the Pac-12. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, they have that Quinnipiac loss, which as you and I both know, I mean, <laughs> you know, that can, that can kill a resume and, and non-conference scheduling. But again, like this team, like, again, if you're scheduling or you lose that game, you're not that worried because this team isn't supposed to be a NCAA tournament team. And, you know, Wayne Tinkle's first year. And I think they've got some tough games left. Like they really do. Um, they have to go to the LA school. They have to go to Arizona, which is obviously not going to be very happy after that first loss. They've got Washington. They've got, they've got a lot of tough games ahead. But if you steal a few of those, then all of a sudden you've got like 
some really nice top 25, top 50 wins. Um, and it, it'll just be, it, it's just, it's very interesting. Cause I mean, I think we thought, you know, over the summer, you know, they get a couple really, you know, big name recruits and you're like, okay, like, you know, this program's on the right track. You know, he took this job late, but they're already going in a good direction. And then like to see what they're doing this season, I think you're right. It's like, it's about, you know, kind of squeezing the most out of the team you've got now. And he's clearly doing that. So clearly something's working with the, with the coaches, players buying in and all of that. And that is not an easy place to win. It's not an easy place to coach at. Um, but I, I mean, I think that they are benefiting, you know, like we were talking about, you know, Ohio State, like Ohio State, sh- you know, should be able to do a lot. The, the Big Ten is kind of a mess, at, maybe down and right, right. whatever than it's been last few years. Pac-12, too, outside of Arizona and Utah. And, you know, Washington's been good, too. But there, there's a lot of opportunity for Oregon State this season, I think. Yeah, like it's not a, it's not a long climb to the top you know, half because you don't have to pass too many people. Like, if you're trying to go from the bottom of the ACC, like, good luck. Because now you're dealing with Duke and Carolina and um, Virginia and Notre Dame and Louisville. Like, there's, a, you, there's some monsters in there. But really... In the Pac-12, I, like I, Utah's obvious. I mean, uh, Arizona's obviously great. Utah's, I think, really, really good. Stanford, I think, is top twenty-five ish. But then after that, it's like whatever. Why not? Why can't you finish fourth in the Pac-12? Well, and that is a conference that has lost a ton to, sure. to the draft, to transfers, you know, whatever. Like in coach turnover, they've had. This is the year that if you're gonna, you know, like you said, make that jump from the bottom to the middle or to the top half of a conference like you make that jump and again like everything is trending in a good direction for Oregon State in general so you know it's they're really interesting team and and, you know they suffer from like like East Coast bias is like legitimately a real thing sure sure. and that's what's always a struggle for Pac-12 teams like I mean again if you go to a random sports bar and you ask people about Arizona players like they're so good but do you think they've seen them more than once maybe maybe not so maybe you've seen Oregon State upset Arizona if that game was on the bar the night that you were out and you saw it, but that's another team that's probably even flying under the radar, despite you know way overachieving so far. Um, I mean, they're fourteen and five. Like that's just that's just amazing to me um, that they're doing that in, in Tinkle's first year. But you know, I don't think people know about them either, and they're one of the best stories in the sport. How about this? I like okay, so like this it's my job to know about this stuff. And when they were getting ready to play Arizona, I remember looking at the. Um, Because I had to do one of those like last call for drunk bets thing. And it was a Sunday night game, I think, or maybe a, I don't know. It was, a, it was one of the late games. I picked it. I picked Arizona. So it was another losing bet that I presented to the world. Um, but I remember at that time, like really looking at Oregon State's resume for the first time. Like I knew their record, but I hadn't really like looked at what they had done and had not done. And I remember looking at it and going, wow, they like, they're, they're like playing pretty well. Like, they, you know, there's, there's actually some substance here. And so it does suggest that what you, you know, there is a little bit of an East Coast bias, even if it isn't intentional, because we just don't see these teams as often. I used to think it was like a fallacy, this East Coast bias thing, because I was young and I'd stay up and watch games. Games all night, so like I didn't. I could watch, you know, the Arizonas and UCLA's just as much as I'd watch the Dukes and the Carolinas. But now that I'm old with like two kids and, and like one and like uh, one child who like gets up at six a.m. to go to school every morning, like I'm very much a victim of the East Coast bias, or, or at least uh, a, a representative of these, because I just I can't stay up that late anymore to watch all these games. So uh, you are like kind of like eighty year old people at heart, and we just get tired anyway, <laughs> right. even if we are younger, but. But I know I like last year, last season, I spent a week out in San Diego for the NCAA convention. And then I did a week in Arizona to see Arizona, Arizona State and Colorado. 
And I just was like amazed at how much easier it was to watch basketball oh, while wow, living yeah. here. Because you know, you you watch a game, then you go eat dinner, um, you watch it, you finish, you watch the second half of another game, and then it's done. Right. And you watch everything. Like and you still have your night to yourself if you want. But uh, it was just so much earlier. And it's it it's the, the, I mean, these games aren't tipping off at like eleven o'clock. And like Gonzaga, again, this year, like they're really, really good. They're really, really deep. And I've barely watched them since non-conference season because they just, you know, it's it's hard, and and you kind of have to like adjust your schedule around these late games. So like it's a, I think it's a real thing. These these coach bias. Yeah, like I actually stayed up late last night, uh, Saturday night, late Saturday night, and watched uh, Stanford, and it was like the eleven p.m. tip, like eleven p.m. Central tip, midnight right, Eastern just, tip, midnight Eastern. Yeah, it was a midnight Eastern tip. I just happened to be up, like I wasn't doing anything, and so I actually stayed up and watched that. But that was um. Yeah, I'm not up that late. Uh, contrary to what my reputation might be, I'm not up that late anymore too often. So um, anyway, it is a nice story what's going on out in uh, Corvallis. Okay, well, listen, I've kept Nicole here long enough, kept you guys here long enough. Let's get out of here. But uh, let me thank everybody for listening. You're kind to do that. Remember, you can subscribe on the uh, to the Ion College Basketball Podcast over on iTunes. The quickest way to get your hands on the latest podcast. So make sure you do that. And uh, either way, we will talk again a little later on this week. Take care.